Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. The Slate Culture Gap Vest is brought to you by BowlandBranch.com, offering luxury bedding at affordable prices. Order right now and they'll give you 20% off plus free shipping. Get sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, and more at BowlandBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-B-R-A-N-C-H.com and use the promo code CULTURE. And by The Haters, the hilarious road trip novel about music and friendship by Jesse Andrews, New York Times bestselling author and screenwriter of the Sundance Award winner Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Find The Haters at abramsbooks.com slash thehaters. And by Green Chef, a new food delivery service that makes cooking easy with consciously sourced healthy recipes and organic ingredients. Get four free meals with your first order when you go to greenchef.com slash culture. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, live from Chelsea edition. It's Friday, April 8th, 2016. On today's show, Everybody Wants Some is the latest slice of life from Richard Linklater, the writer-director who brought us Slacker, Dazed and Confused, and dozens of other gems at this point. And then, it's early yet, but it appears as if online retailer Amazon is the early winner in the race to matrix us all into totally passive slugs with... I love it when I get her in the intro. Uh, with its Echo device, we discuss with special guest Echo. And also with the living organism known as Will Aremus, who is Slate's tech correspondent, columnist, whatever. And finally, what four faces would you carve into a cultural Mount Rushmore? It's easy. Springsteen, 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 and Springsteen. <laughs> anyway, we bring Dan Coyce up on stage to help a seat of the pants our way through a classic, very third segmenty third segment. Julia, I did want to ask you before we start. Yes. Are you worried that Echo will recognize you as one of its own when we do that segment? <laughs> I'm going to be outed on the stage yeah. as a fellow robot. Yeah, exactly. I can't wait. We'll find out. I can't wait to see you cradle it in a warm maternal <laughs> embrace. A kind of Coco the Gorilla. <laughs> Joining me today, I told you I'd get you back for the warm-up. Joining me today is uh, Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. It's a delight to be here. And, of course, uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hello, Steven. All right, we got no business, right? We just dive in at these live shows. Okay, let's let's do it. Everybody Wants Some, two exclamation points, is the new movie from writer-director Richard Linklater. You could say it's a kind of sort of sequel to his now quite revered, deservedly revered, Dazed and Confused. It's raffish and shambling. I hope those two things don't mean the same thing. (laughs) Not really. Um, A tale of the weekend running up to the beginning of freshman year for a college baseball player enrolling at the University of Texas in the fall of 1980. It's actually a fictional school, I think, that he's enrolling in. But but Linklater did go to UT. Um, That was really important to break my flow for that. Thank you, Dana. (laughs) (laughs) It features all the raillery and period deep cuts and some shallow cuts you might expect. But also, if if you're a Linklater fan, it also features uh, his patented way with elegy, longing, and stoner metaphysics. It stars Blake Jenner and Glenn Powell and Zoe Deutsch. None of those words mean anything to me. Let's listen, let's watch, listen, and watch a clip. What are you doing? Putting it on. First time wearing cologne? No. Get it on there, man. Get it under your arms and on your chest. Just put it on your neck. Come on. I don't know, man. Too much of this smells like cat piss. Oh, shit. Trying to help you out and you're going to question me? Jesus. I'm telling you, man. Chicks dig this shit. All right? 
Yeah, you can come back here and do the five knuckle shuffle all night if you want to. I don't really care. What's the five knuckle shuffle? Jesus, freshman, figure it out, man. Hey, go on, McReynolds. You're so fucking desperate, dude. Desperate for pussy? All right, Dana, you are the film critic. I'm going to start with you, Dana Stevens. Dana, na, 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 what do you think of this movie? Yes, um, everybody wants some. So I think I found this movie irresistible. It's, it's hard to imagine anyone resisting this movie, although I just finished reading uh, Amy Nicholson's review in MTV, MTV.com, and she actually did find it loathsome, and the kind of the, the bro ethos that you see expressed in that, that clip really got to her, and she sort of felt like, Linklater, grow up, you know, just, just get out of the boys' room, sort of. But my comparison for this movie it's not at the caliber of Dazed and Confused, okay? Although Linklater has called it a spiritual sequel to Dazed and Confused. But it feels a little bit like spending two hours in the company of Wooderson, the character that Matthew McConaughey plays in Dazed and Confused, the old guy who comes back to, to pick up the college girls. It's sort of like being in a frat house with ten Woodersons for two hours. So why is that enjoyable? I don't, I don't quite know. <laughs> but it was. You found it enjoyable. Uh, completely. Completely. I would, not, I would not place it anywhere in the kind of mm-hmm. top rung of, of Linklater's work, but it feels like maybe uh, like Bernie, the movie he made with Jack Black a few years ago. Mm-hmm. It's this sort of, you know, these, these smaller, like you say, sort of shambling movies that he makes that are, that are more about... Um, Bernie's not a good example, maybe, because it's based on a true story and it has some right. actual drama in it, but this movie is almost conflict-free, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in that sense, it's not unlike a movie we discussed last year, Magic Mike XXL, mm-hmm. which is really about a road trip and a bunch of guys having fun together and what it is to be with your buds. And uh, I suppose that if you're being Aristotelian and trying to you know, map out the plot structure, nothing really happens in this movie, but it invites you into a world that's really sort of warm and welcoming, even though it, d- it has essentially no female characters and is all about guys trying to get pussy. So why is that not bothering me at all? <laughs> Julia? I'm trying to decide whether you win the Gabfest drinking game for saying Aristotelian or pussy first. <laughs> uh, Julia, we talk a lot on the show about the end of men inspired by uh, Hannah Rosen's uh, work. Uh, men may be ending, but they're not going quietly. Uh, uh, Magic Mike being a good example, this movie being another example. Uh, it sometimes felt to me like 10 guys trying to be the next Matthew McConaughey a little bit, but um, what'd you think of the movie? Well, I was trying to figure out. It did not make me mad at all. I loved it. I felt like I was luxuriating in a delightful, warm bath of, of like pleasant company and just uh, the particular realizations of all of these specific different stripes of baseball jock bro. I did not know there were so many kinds uh, there's incredible <laughs> diversity among baseball jocks, I learned from this movie, I guess. Um, but the pleasure that Linklater takes in portraying their dynamics and elucidating their particular little characters and coming up with the different power struggles that are minute and stupid and about who's better at ping pong and who can flick each other's knuckles more often, mm-hmm. are, like are so beautifully realized and there's so much fun music behind it and it's just so funny. I mean, I think... Part of why I did not share Amy Nicholson's response and feel like, why are, why are we hanging out with all these young men? Why can't Richard Linklater take women seriously? Is that I would draw a real distinction in Linklater's movies between the ones about youth and the ones about being a grown-up. And I think it's interesting that the most compelling women that he's put on screen have been the grown-ups, right? It's been Julie Delpy. I mean, I guess she wasn't a grown-up in the first one, but in the before and during and after Sunset and Rise movies, whatever those are called. <laughs> um, she's a real person. And Patricia Arquette in Boyhood is like a real, fully realized grown-up human person. And to me, what's interesting about the Linklater suite about being younger is that the stakes of being young feel high when you are young, and they are high. Like, you're figuring out how to do everything, and it feels crazy and scary and wondrous and... He can put you in that mind frame of how complicated and confusing the world is. And that's what I think is so powerful about Dazed and Confused. It's like this fun, joyous, like one crazy night party movie, but it really understands what the stakes of those nights feel like to a teen who's trying to figure out where they fit with all the different social groups and like what romance will be in their lives and could something like that ever happen to them. The thing that's weird about this movie is that these are guys for whom the stakes are lowest. They're still high-ish, but they're like the ones for whom it's always worked. Like, they're the jocks. They just 
get to make out with girls. It's not complicated. They just show up at a party and then girls make out with them. Like it's the, the there's no like Wiley Wiggins driving around anxiously like hoping to kiss the girl. So that also seems like a reason to not like it. And yet it was so fucking charming. I know it is really charming. I mean, but I guess I guess that's part of what's interesting about it though is he's taking these people seriously uh, and and sort of what it feels like to be them and to have all of that. Uh, bounty before them of like getting to be the kings of school mm-hmm. um, and he's wry about it but he's not making fun of them uh, and he's not lionizing them either and so it was good mm-hmm. something else I think really significant about the charm of this movie is that it has no stars in it and that's something that Linklater often does and does really well one guy the guy who, guy who plays more or less the main character who we sort of follow through the first weekend has been on Glee, but I didn't know him from Glee. And a lot of the others are complete, complete unknowns. And so there's just something, there's something about this, this pack of guys that you've never seen before and that you sort of have to get to know, not based on any previous star persona or any association with the kind of role that they would take, you know, that really makes you feel like you've been just plunged into it, to the world. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, it's really, it's a pecking order, not a menagerie, right? Like, it's not this... Uh, uh, as you say, they're all sort of of a type. They're this pack of j- jocks. And it's studying a little bit how the internal pecking order of a group of bonding young men forms itself and establishes itself and who gets to alpha, who gets to beta. Uh, that's pretty interesting. I also think it's kind of cool that it's... He ends his movies beautifully without making you feel as though he thought a ton about it. But he seems, I mean, this was very, I don't want to give anything away about this movie, but Boyhood was like that, right? Boyhood Boyhood ended on a note that made you think, Richard Linklater is thinking through the mechanics of time and loss in this extremely naturalistic filmmaking style. I think that's also true of this movie. And without giving anything away, what's, what's fascinating about that is there is one character that this is kind of, focused on and you sense that he's the one who will live beyond this pecking order that his, that his assigned place within it as a guy who's a pitcher they don't like like the baseball team in general doesn't trust pitchers there's something intrinsically eccentric about them or he's a freshman which means he needs to receive a certain amount of like a kind of almost preset amount of hazing but he's also a guy who and this is done so gently he um courts a woman by writing a note with Whitman, Walt Whitman in it. And you sense that this is a movie in its own weird way, like kind of embedded in the movie is the story of a guy who's going to completely transcend baseball. And it's how he's relating to nine guys who won't. And so it's just Linklater has a genius for for pathos that's laid on thin but beautifully. That's so interesting. I I hadn't really thought that about the main character, but I think you're totally right. And of course, Linklater, we haven't mentioned, played college baseball in a relatively serious way. And then only afterwards sort of figured out that filmmaking was going to be his thing. So you can sort of see the roots of that in that character. Mm-hmm. Should we talk a little bit, Dana? I mean, does he... Okay, so he is emerging as one of the great... I mean, really, he is emerging as one of the great American filmmakers. And and what I love about Linklater is he reminds me of... He reminds me a little bit of Eric Romer. Everyone drink. Um, <laughs> in that Romer's... No single Romer movie bears the burden of his reputation as a filmmaker. There's a cumulative power to that style over several movies because it's in itself gentle as a, as a directorial style in a way. He's emerging, as a, I think, as a filmmaker of that stature. Nonetheless, the rap on him, there's kind of a Dan, Dan Coyce school of thought about this movie and what's-her-name, Amy Nicholson, uh, school of thought about the movie, which is that it, it, this is a movie almost entirely without women, and it compounds that problem by having one love object who's super idealized and whose subjectivity does not seem labored over by, <laughs> by, by you know, in, in the making of the script. Do you think Linkletter is a problem for him as a filmmaker, or is it just something that he just, he, he, it's just not what the film is about, and we shouldn't Right, yeah. No, I think it would need to be three more movies in a row with that pattern for me to start seeing it as a problem. I think you're right that he's like Romer in his his observation, his kind of ironic slight remove and his observation of the fine details of human behavior. And that's really what he's doing with this this pack of bros. And so that's why I have trouble reading it as just a a fist-pumping, go-bros kind of movie. It, it, it feel actually like feels like, and this is, I think, what Dan writes about when he writes about the movie, that it's, it's trying to open up the question of what it could be to be homosocial, you know, what it could mean to, to socialize with other men. Drink. 
<laughs> and to and to admire each other and love each other. And there's all this vanity. There's tons of you know butt patting on the field and you know guys admiring themselves in their tight silky shirts. And there's just all this sort of peacock-like self-love. And that's not something that you see. You know that 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 feels like it's just taking the bro ethos to another place. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. Do you come out on one side of this or another? I suppose you have already, but I I I feel like I have no objectivity about Linklater. Like I just I watched Dazed and Confused at an age where, and actually before Sunrise, where I just it's like too nostalgic. And then that is the subject of it is like looking back on being that age. So I can't. I just find it so pleasing. I mean, I went and saw the movie with my husband, and I was like reveling in it and delighted. And afterwards, was like, ugh. What fun. Like, I feel like I'm not sure we're doing a good enough job selling, like, how fucking delightful the movie is. Like, you should all go see it. It's not, it doesn't read, like, anthropology of the pecking order. It's just, like, right. a lot of great jokes about funny dudes. But it's like, I mean, it's like, a, it's like a cross between the anthropology of pecking order and, like, hanging out with jocks. Yeah, yeah. It's like, good, good jocks, fun, well, good-hearted jocks. Good anthropology, good jocks. It's yeah. also full of fantastic music. The soundtrack yeah. is, is great. And has the feeling of the soundtrack, to me, is a little bit, although the movie's not near as, as expansive, is a little bit like Boogie Nights. You know, there's, there's just a very precise choice of music, and there's a lot of dance scenes. You get to see them do kicker dancing. You get to see them do disco dancing. You get to see them go to a punk club and mosh. And you get this sense, it's set in 1980, you get this sense that they're at this moment heading toward the moment that we're in now, when culture has diversified into this, you know, these huge number of niche cultures, but they're there right at the beginning of it, just trying to figure mm-hmm. out, yeah, who are we, where do we belong? Smart. Yeah, that's very good. Um, well done, David. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, it's called Everybody Wants Some, to exclamation points. Who's now going to go see the movie? All right. All right. This is Julia Turner back at the Slate New York studios. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored this week by Bull and Branch. How you sleep affects how much you enjoy your life, and what you sleep on affects how much you sleep. So the easiest way to change your life may actually be to change your sheets. Bowl and Branch has reimagined sheets by cutting out the middlemen, markups, and the chain store mentality to deliver luxury sheets for a fraction of the price you'd pay elsewhere. You can only get their sheets in one place, that's bowlandbranch.com, where you know you're paying for quality and not department store overhead. You're getting $1,000 sheets for just a couple hundred bucks. Go online, that's B-O-L-L and branch.com, and they'll let you try them risk-free for 30 nights. If you don't absolutely love them, you can send them back. They also have a special deal for our listeners, 20% off your entire order. Go to bowlandbranch.com today for 20% off and use the promo code CULTURE. That's bowlandbranch.com, promo code CULTURE. Okay, back to our live show. Okay, moving on. Voice recognition is something we all know, of course, from Siri, from our iPhone. But we are now moving one step closer to the Jetsons, to integrating not just voice recognition, but artificial intelligence into our daily lives, beginning with Amazon's Echo. It's a cylinder you stick in the center of your living room to pepper with oh-so-relevant queries. You know, the kind of stuff that you couldn't look up online with fingers, like what, what's the weather today? Um, joining us to discuss the Echo is... Echo, and Slate's own tech columnist, Will Remus. Will, why don't you come up on stage? Alexa gets her own mic. Alexa, do we need to check your levels? <laughs> that's that's going to be a theme. <laughs> All right, so as those of you who have one of these things already known, uh, for those of you who don't, you, you activate it by saying just the word Alexa, right? Yeah, supposedly. It's not doing anything right now. <laughs> well, it doesn't, you have to train it a little bit, is that correct? Yeah, so supposedly it gets to know your voice as you use it. This is actually June Thomas's echo, <laughs> which is going to be really interesting. Maybe We may all have to speak with a British accent. None of us can do June's accent. It's, it's futile to try. So I, I think... Um, you know, Apple's Siri was really the first uh, virtual assistant to, to introduce this concept to all of us, that we could talk to our device and it would talk back. And the premise of Siri implicitly was that we could sort of ask it anything. You know, we could say anything because it had these, these sort of like canned responses to common things that you would say. Um, and, uh, you know, you would say like, Siri, talk dirty to me. And it would say, pumice, silt, gravel. And so it, it, it tried to, it, it implied that it was 
an actual artificial intelligence that you could hold a conversation with. And as anybody who has used Siri knows, it is not that. It's dumb as a rock. And if you ask it anything that it hasn't been pre-programmed to ask, uh, to answer, then it will have a really hard time. So what, what the Echo from Amazon does, it, it's really smart, actually. Um, Amazon figured out maybe 10 or 15 things at first that the Echo could do, that you could ask it. And it does those really well. So you can get it to, to play music. You can get it to... So Alexa, uh, what's the weather? In Brooklyn, it's 44 degrees with intermittent clouds. Tonight, you can look for clouds and a low of 44 degrees. We're not in Brooklyn, but close enough. <laughs> she sounds very wistful. You can look for clouds. <laughs> All right, well, we should definitely get into why it's gendered. People have written about why these voice you know, recognition personal assistants are, appear to be either women or British. But uh, setting that aside for one second, Will, I should say you wrote a terrific piece for Slate about Echo. Uh, you lived with it for a while. I, I see what Amazon gets out of this arrangement the world's largest retailer gets to put an information gathering device in the middle of your home and it monitors you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Good deal for them. Everybody go buy one. (laughs) Why do I want one? Well, so I I should say that that Amazon will tell you it's not actually spying on you 24-7. The fact that it has to say that, I think, tells us something. It, It is listening all the time. Uh, you can, unless you press mute, which which I'll do after our segment. But it's listening all. If you the want time. to say something mean about it, we can. <laughs> Thanks. Make it turn her off. Yeah. Uh, so it is listening all the time, but it, it doesn't actually send what you say to Amazon servers and store it there, unless you say the wake word, which is which is Alexa. So so now that I've, once you say Alexa, then it's taking note of what you said and it's going to store that in an app and it's going to mine that data for all sorts of purposes. Right, and presumably your upload. I mean. Part of the business model for Amazon, correct me if I'm wrong, is that it is gathering and big data analyzing all of this data, at the very least big data, big data analyzing all of this information, right? I mean, it's not, it's definitely being uploaded to, you know. Yeah, and that's, and I should say that, that, that uh, it's not just Amazon and it's not just Siri. Um, so, so part of the reason I wrote this story is we still think of these gadgets as novelties and toys because that's, you know, they're not that smart yet. They can't, they can't do a lot of amazing things, and so we tend to interact with them as toys. But all of the biggest tech companies in the world are building their version of natural language software that can interact with you in a sort of human-like way. So Amazon has the Echo and, and Alexa. I always have to be careful about saying Alexa because then it starts listening. Now it is spying on me. Um, uh, Google has uh, conversational search and Google Now and the Google app. Um, and uh, Facebook is integrating natural language understanding into Messenger, into the news feed. All across Facebook, uh, artificial intelligence is learning to understand the content of what you're saying. Uh, if you talk to somebody in Facebook Messenger now about wanting to order an Uber, it can actually sort of hear that. It's not voice-based, it's text-based, but it will hear that and understand it, and then it, it can order an Uber for you right from the right from the app. All the evil companies can communicate with each other perfectly. <laughs> but I said, Will, I still don't get what is the added value for the consumer of this thing. We haven't seen it do anything that June Thomas can't tell us from the audience, or we can't Google in one second. Well, I mean, I think the... To me, the power of talking to your device, I started dictating emails on my phone when my kids were really young and I was like at home on maternity leave and like nursing them and didn't have hands free and became totally addicted to it and would do it all the time in public except for that then I would be like a walking person out of the movie Her. But I was amazed at how quickly my phone learned to hear me, like understand my voice prompts and I almost never have to correct typos and once you get used to talking to your things you're like oh so onerous to use my fingers you know so like the weather doesn't seem so great but but okay the music prompt so let's try Alexa play my Sharona my Sharona by the knack from prime music (laughs) alright Alexa turn it off Shit. <laughs> this is just going to be the backing track to the rest of the show. <laughs> it's going to make it so hard for you to edit. Alexa, turn it off. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. that was, that was boss lady voice. It's, it's funny because you, know, these, you talked about the, the gender thing earlier. I mean, I think that these tech companies want to humanize the software so that you can kind of trust it. You kind of treat it like a person. I, I for instance, uh, when I'm annoyed with... 
the echo, I won't just say turn off, I'll say shut the hell up, and it gets that. And that makes me feel good <laughs> about myself. Uh, but, the, but the appeal, I mean, so the appeal of the echo in particular um, is, to me, it does basically anything that, are, that are, decent clock radio will do. This thing will do really well. So you can get the news, you can get the weather, but you can also order things on Amazon. So you asked earlier, Stephen, about why Amazon wants this. I mean, partly this is another, it just makes, it removes one more barrier to ordering stuff on Amazon. So Alexa, order more Hearts puppy pads. Based on your order history, I found two matching items. (laughs) The first is Hearts home protection pads for dogs, 50 count. It's $16.43 total. Do you want the 50 count, Jenny? Should I order it? <laughs> Alexa, no. Sorry, I'm having a technical problem right now. <laughs> so, She's so, just incapable of not ordering the thing on Amazon. <laughs> Once you talk about it, it just proceeds. Right. So for Amazon, it's another vehicle to get you to buy stuff, partly. But for, for Google, for instance, and Facebook, it really is about mining your data. Mm-hmm. Um, but... but those other, so the, the Google app, which you can now talk to more like a person, um, the idea there is uh, that when you're in your car or when you're, when you're in your kitchen or anywhere that you don't have a computer in front of you, you now can access Google and you just talk to it like a person and you can look something up and it'll, it'll talk back to you. Mm-hmm. But obviously she's making choices in that case, right? I mean, if you, if you want to say something like, you know, um, what's, what's the best novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald or something? You can't ask a qualitative question, right, the way that you could search on Google. You just have to go with whatever she picks as the top pick. So it just seems like it's part of more of that vertically integrated, top-down, Amazon will decide everything for you kind of. Here's a question I have. When you confront a new technology as a technology writer, I would imagine one of the questions that you're asking yourself is, is this... A, you know, there's a degree of utility, but it's basically a novelty item. Uh, it's kind of fun, but it's going to end up junk. It's going to end up in the landfill. However, some things point to you are on a frontier and you're on the verge of something that's going to really change the way human beings relate to themselves in the world. Clearly, the more this integrates into a person's domestic life, the more successful a product it is. It's also it's very important to say it's not it's not simply a hands-free or a voice recognition convenience. The goal is eventually to have something with a degree of suppleness that imitates human consciousness. I mean, the, the ultimate goal is artificial intelligence, which is to have a kind of circuit-based being in your house that gets to know you. Is this landfill or is this Jarvis? What are we, what are we moving towards? Do you have any sense of that? Yeah, I mean, I think anybody who works in, uh, anybody who tries to do artificial intelligence or machine learning programming will tell you that we're really, really, really far away right. from a world where you can write code that, that has anything resembling human consciousness. Uh, but we are making incredible leaps in machine learning, um, which is the subfield of computer science, um, where instead of programming uh, software to, to do specific things in response to specific inputs, you are training, you're, you're telling it to have certain goals, and then you're letting it try all sorts of different ways of achieving those goals over a huge training set of data until it devises its own strategies. This is, it's called deep learning. Um, this is what allowed... Uh, Google to build a computer that built uh, that beat the legendary world champion of the game Go recently. Uh, this same type of software is what's making possible the advances that are turning um, voice-activated devices from you know the the joke that Siri is and was a few years ago right. into devices that you really can interact with in a lot of settings as though as though they are sort of human. Mm-hmm. But to return to Dana's point, I mean, part of why I asked it about Mount Rushmore was not to get the answer to the question, but to one thing you highlighted in your piece this week is that. First of all, the the interface here, for all of the funny glitches, it's pretty easy. Like, it's pretty tantalizing. I definitely come away from this kind of wanting one, despite all of the apocalypticism from my left. Um, and You're far left. <laughs> there's a little over here, too, I think. Yeah, um, I'm apocalyptic. But when she explained that information, she didn't say where she was pulling it from. She just told us the answer, and we just have to trust her, as opposed to the thing where you go through... Google and you have this ability through all of the different little textual clues of figuring out which source to trust and why and where do you go and obviously that's a 
that's a uh, fact that's fairly easy to confirm and verify, but there's a set of more subtle ones where it really matters, like your ability to weigh information. For, for someone in my role of providing information to people, um, the notion of a filter like this, where the end listener doesn't get to choose from an array of options, but just has you know, a selected partner delivered to them, feels like, all right, well, this is a whole other you know, news and information landscape for us all to navigate. And, and the narrowing possibilities there feel frightening to me. Yeah, that's what I think is fascinating about it. So, so in the story, I looked at it in this sort of like world historical context. Of, we started out, uh, you know, the, the history of humans and computers is that when you wanted to use a computer in the past, uh, you had to learn its language. So like first you had to do punch cards and then there were like command line prompts. And then we got the graphical user interface uh, with, uh, with the Apple Macintosh in the 80s. Uh, we got touch screens and, and tapping uh, in the 2000s with mobile phones. And now all the big tech companies think that, that the next frontier, the ultimate frontier really is a computer that we don't have to learn to use because we can just talk to it and it will learn to interact mm -hmm. with us like a human. That, that is wonderful in many ways uh, and, and convenient in many ways. And you can, you can you know, I should say that this thing works better when you have it in your own home and it knows your voice than it's working on the stage here today. Uh, but one of the downsides of this is that with a graphical user interface, you look something up on Google, you are going to get uh, a list of, of results. And those are all from different independent sites across the web. And then you can, you can go there and evaluate that site and see if you trust what it's saying. And if you don't, you can go to some other site. That's just not practical on a, on a device that interacts mm -hmm. with you like a human. It's not how humans interact. You know, if I, if I ask you, uh, you know, who's on Mount Rushmore, you're not going to say, here are 10 web pages that, you know, right, you're going to give me the answer. And that's what this does which is great in a way, but how do we know where it's getting that information? How do we know uh, how Amazon decided that when you say, tell me the news, that it's going to give you the NPR briefing from TuneIn? How do you, you know, why did Amazon decide that uh, it was going to work with Domino's to let you order pizza first? Did Domino's outbid Little Caesars? Can't, can't you imagine know? why. Um, so... <laughs> Right, so so I mean, it, it, it raises it raises some fundamental concerns when you're interacting with a device whose job is no longer to direct you to a variety of independent sources across the web, but rather to just give you its answer to a question mm -hmm. or its recommendation. Well, especially if these things do get more sophisticated and start to be able to do the things that we want them to do, and everybody wants them in their household, it becomes more and more disturbing that they're controlled by, you know, and so, and only sold by these huge corporations with an interest in getting you to buy their stuff. Right. It, just, it almost seems like an antitrust issue. I mean, it seems like if these things become really a household utility that everybody wants in their house, isn't there going to have to be some form of regulation and not just companies giving us devices that plug us directly into their bank accounts? I mean, our, our phones do that, don't they? I mean, it, it, but it is, you're right, it's a new level, it's a new level um, of, of potentially uh, monopolistic, or at least I should say it's a new way for them to lock you in. Um, so, so like with... Uh, um, you know, if you have a personal assistant like Siri or Cortana, in order for it to really work well, you have to use it more and more. It has to get to know you. Because in order to understand what you're saying, it has to know the context of who you are, what your name is, what your location is at any given time, uh, where you work, what your friends' names are. If it doesn't know all that stuff, then it can't interact with you like a human. It can't, you know, it can't get as smart as it needs to get to work well. And so there's a concern that, that okay, maybe I get Cortana to know me really well, then does that mean that I'm only going to you know, use the information sources that, that Microsoft has chosen for me? All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on stage uh, to talk to us about Amazon. Zach, uh, Thanks for having me. Thank you. Hi, this is Julia Turner back in the New York studio. Our other sponsor this week is the funny new road trip novel, The Haters, by me and Earl and the dying girl author and screenwriter Jesse Andrews, published by Amulet Books. A rock novel inspired by the years Andrew spent playing bass in a band himself, The Haters is a book about music, love, friendship, and freedom. It follows three young musicians as they escape from jazz camp and attempt to dodge the law just long enough to play the show of their dreams. Roddy Doyle, author of The Commitment, says, The Haters is terrific. It's shocking and funny, unsettling and charming, and Booklist calls it a raunchy bromance in the vein of Seinfeld. Check out Jesse Andrews's The Haters and share the band you hate to love using the hashtag The Haters Book. Back to the show. All right, a couple, three weeks ago with the book critic Laura Miller guesting in for um, Dana, we talked about what four faces you might stick on your own 
Mount Rushmore if you had such a prerogative, if you had the power to make a new one, and the parameters were as follows. The four must be dead. They must be American. They must not be political figures. They must be cultural figures. Uh, the piece was very, very, so catnippy that we traded, I mean, it must have been 60 emails in the aftermath of it with Laura, among ourselves, with Dana, with Dan Coyce, revising and re-revising all of our four. It's actually uh, quite fun. It's so catnippy and so fun that we actually bumped a guest for segment three. Do you know who we bumped? Can you guess? Elena Ferrante. <laughs> but, but to make up for it, I can reveal who Elena Ferrante really is. Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> and he wrote the four novels to prepare for his role in True Detective season one. So anyway, har har. Um, to bring, uh, to, to bring this mercifully to a close? I don't know, not really. To, uh, uh, to hijack the segment, we're bringing up on stage Slate's culture ed- editor, Dan Coyce, who's going to lead us through our esprit d'escalier involving four faces, four... Uh, hey, guys. Hey, Dan. Okay, so uh, as the culture editor of Slate, I was very upset when you did this segment last week and you claimed to have come to some conclusions. Any conclusions, like... Any set-in-stone conclusions about culture at Slate go through me. <laughs> Dana was also very upset because she wasn't there to argue about it. So we, yes, we want to present some, we want to present some other options. Dana wants to give her Mount Rushmore. I want to hear you guys defend your Mount Rushmores of American culture. Uh, we also have suggestions from our audience. I have really good ones right here in my pocket. We are also going to take suggestions from Facebook Live. We are broadcasting right now on Facebook Live, and uh, Chelsea is going to come up on stage and stand behind that podium and give us a few of the great suggestions we are getting there. So once again, uh, the Mount Rushmore of American culture, they got to be dead. They got to be American in some realistic way. They, can, they don't necessarily have to be a documented U.S. citizen, but they have to be American in spirit uh, and body, hopefully. Oh, no, um, they got to be a citizen. <laughs> and, uh, and they have to have contributed in some major way to American culture. So um, we have, uh, through the help of Slate's amazing art department, we have created these Mount Rushmores for our three Gabfesters. Um, so if we can have that, those slides up on the screen, please. Um, and we're going to start with Dana Stevens. Dana, you were not there last week. Um, and so you, I think, really w- want to talk a little bit about what was it about this that made you so eager to contribute to this conversation? Yeah, this was this is one of my favorite segments I've heard on our show. I don't always listen to our show, but I do always listen when I'm not on it. And uh, and it was reason enough for joining Slate Plus just to hear you guys talk about this idea of a cultural Mount Rushmore, which brought up so many questions I hope we can get into um, in this conversation. We should know, by the way, that James Callan, Slate listener James Callan, uh, reader and listener, gave this question to yeah, us. Yeah, he was the one who suggested that. And now the it's topic. given us two full segments, so thank you, James <laughs> Thanks, Callan. Thanks, James. Um, so, so one thing I, I, I didn't think you guys got into so much in the Slate Plus segment that I wanted to know is, have, have any of you been to Mount Rushmore? Never. Nope. Nope. And the audience, <laughs> a, a, applaud if you've seen Mount Rushmore. Yeah, small. I mean, it's, I think it's fewer way people there. than have the echo, but more people than have seen everybody wants some. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, I feel like seeing Mount Rushmore and also the uh, the Crazy Horse Mountain. If you know about that, there's this kind of counter Mount Rushmore that's that's being carved nearby in the Black Hills of South Dakota. That's been, I think, it's been sort of a project in progress since 1948 or something like that, and it's still not finished. But I think something to observe before we get into our contestations of our cultural Mount Rushmores is that the actual Mount Rushmore is this very contested site, and it always has been, um, since Gutzen Borglum, the Danish sculptor who actually made the faces. (laughs) Since he started doing the sculpture in the 20s, uh, there's been this dispute about who should be on it, and it did wind up being the four presidents. But at first, it was supposed to be sort of a, a promotion for South Dakota tourism, and it was it was supposed to be about Western heroes. So the original uh, proposition by this sort of South Dakota tourist board, I believe, was um, was that it would be Lewis and Clark, Red Cloud, who's an Oglala Lakota leader from that area, and um, who was the other person? Oh, Buffalo Bill Cody. So there were these sort of, you know, wet figures of the West. And uh, through whatever calculations, this ended up instead turning into a partly government-funded thing, and suddenly it was the president's. But 
there's been a contestation about who should be up there all along. And there's also, I guess, this crazy horse mountain that's being carved as a, as a kind of an alternative Native American contest or contestation to, to Mount Rushmore is also disputed. And plenty of Native Americans are not behind that because they're saying these were our sacred lands and we don't, Crazy Horse would not have wanted to be carved into the land. He didn't even like his photograph to be taken. So that's just to lay the groundwork and just say that Mount Rushmore itself, as you were sort of talking about when you called it this monument of kitsch, right, is this bizarre contested site. So, so anything we name here is kind of kind of crazy. I mean, the fact that there, the, the faces in the mountain exist is crazy. And one of my tourist dreams is to drive through South Dakota and see them one day. So, okay, so should I get to my Mount Rushmore? Yeah, all right, let's hear your first face. So what I had to work on in putting my Mount Rushmore together was not to be too writer heavy, because I have this tendency to want to just put writers. So I had, I thought about Melville, I thought about Twain, I thought about Emerson, all of these, um, or Walt Whitman would be one who I think you discussed last yeah. week, all of these writers who kind of embody the ethos of America. But then I was thinking, who is our most original American writer? Who's an American writer that just almost created a, a genre all their own and nobody has ever done anything like it before or since? And that would be my number one figure, Dan, Emily Dickinson. Who I know that Laura said in your segment, the problem with putting Emily on your mountain is she would not have wanted her face on any mountain, right? She was very retiring and would probably be horrified to be in a mountain, but come on, she looks looks pretty good up there. (laughs) So that's my writer. Uh, My next artist is, this might be easy to guess, I wanted to have somebody from the world of cinema, and I was thinking, like, who is a figure from the world of cinema who, who does it all? Someone who's not just a director, but who's, who's an actor, who creates his own work, who is a comic, who is a stuntman. And I decided that that figure, and one of the great artists America has produced, should be Buster Keaton. Ooh, you got, a, you got an ooh and an ah. And he looks great up there, too, right? Although the old Buster Keaton might be even better in the stone, you know? I mean, the great stone face was his, his nickname, right? So he, he belongs up there. Um, my third figure is another writer and an activist, an author, um, who I put on there because, well, he's one of my favorite authors, and I really feel like in the post-civil rights era, he's sort of, he's been the voice and sort of the conscience of, of black America. And that is our greatest chronicler of the civil rights movement and years thereafter, James Baldwin. Also a beautiful face. Baldwin is just an incredible man. The, the look of his face is so perfect in the mountain. Uh, my last is maybe my most contested even with me, because I was thinking, look, I don't have music represented. I need to have a musician in here. I also loved Laura Miller's idea that there needed to be an immigrant, and maybe particularly a Jewish immigrant, because of all the vitality that Jewish immigrants have brought to American culture. And so I was racking my brains for what figure that should be, and I decided to go with, can anybody name this guy? (laughs) Irving Berlin, yes, who... Irving Berlin's story, which I didn't really know until I started reading up for this Mount Rushmore segment, is quite incredible, his immigrant story. He came to the U.S. at the age of five with his family. He was a Russian Jew, and he'd grown up in just dirt, poor poverty, like there was literally a dirt floor on the hut in the the village that he lived in. And he just sort of worked his way up with very little education through the American entertainment industry and wound up writing, I mean, talk about, talk about kitsch. The songs that this Jewish immigrant ended up writing include White Christmas, Alexander's Ragtime Band, which was sort of one of the great first crossover, crossover pieces between black and white music that sort of became popular in the US in 1911, I think. God Bless America is an Irving Berlin song. There's no business like show business is an Irving Berlin song. I just, I feel like his, his, Handprint is all over American pop culture and Tin Pan Alley. So he just seemed like he belonged up there, too. All right. So that's a great, a great Mount Rushmore. Um, I'm going to take those four suggestions under advisement. Thank you, Dana. They're in the hopper as I decide what's going to actually, actually go on Slate's Mount Rushmore of culture. Um, But let's move on. And we now have Julia Turner. Okay. So two of mine are redos from the Slate Plus segment that some of you may have heard. So I will zip through those. I'm not sure I paid as much attention to the facial structure of my <laughs> suggestions as Dana did. I wasn't thinking about their sculptability, so that may count against my arguments with you, Dan. We'll let you decide. Uh, so, number one, which actually I think all of us chose uh, when Steve and Laura and I did this, was Billy Wilder. For uh, This was the person that Laura mentioned who she spoke about the importance of including a Jewish immigrant. Um, but Billy Wilder is responsible for so many wonderful things in American cinema, not least The Apartment and Some Like It Hot, uh, Ace in the Hole. I mean, you, the, the, the style of um, wit and tartness and lightness of foot uh, and um, deliciousness of the various entertainments that he produced is, uh, there's a lot of breadth to it. And 
it's delicious. So I felt like you had to do something with the movies. We had a big debate about whether you could put an actor up there, and Dana nobly did. It felt, it feels hard to me to put an actor. I feel like the the. In some ways, the actors feel to me like the medium of cinema rather than the creators but of cinema. But what if that actor is also a director? No, I'm editor. not arguing. I'm not arguing with Buster Keaton. It's like when, that that makes sense. Right. But it, but, it, but for me, somehow to, to put a writer and director up there makes more sense when you're thinking about a creator, and that probably speaks more to my biases than anything else. But Billy so, Wilder. So you're saying it would be just kind of asinine to put just an actor up there? <laughs> I'm just laying some groundwork here. Um, totally unspeakably asinine. Yeah, I kind of missed the point of the whole exercise. Yeah, basically just like, it's kind of moronic, boneheaded. Like no person seriously affiliated with culture or culture criticism. Definitely, right. Okay, yeah, got okay, it. yep, stipulated. Uh, okay, uh, number two, Walt Whitman. It's also very hard to... to uh, uh, God damn, he looks good up there. <laughs> I like how his beard kind of just flows into the granite. (laughs) The whole mountain is his beard. I mean, Walt Whitman is not my favorite American writer. As I spoke about last week, it's, I found in thinking about this project, like you want a writer whose work is sort of about Americanness in a way. And Walt Whitman is not my favorite American writer, but I do love his work. And it just is about the feeling of being an American when America was figuring out what it meant to be American. uh, And, his particular take on that question and the breadth of it and the the encompassing of many American experiences that you can encounter in his poetry just feels like, yeah, throw that guy on a mountain. Throw that guy on a big mountain out west. Thumbs up. Like, what are you going to put F. Scott Fitzgerald up there? Like, come on. He doesn't want to be on a mountain. He's, that's something his stuff is about. Would um, you say you'd have to be a total idiot to put F. Scott Fitzgerald on? <laughs> <laughs> I see where this is going. Uh, I'm not taking that bait. Uh, all right. My change up, uh, my third face is Duke Ellington. We talked about a bunch of names. Ooh, claps. Note the claps, Kois. Um, it's hard. There's so many different figures out of jazz and out of the history of music. And, and when you think about American musicians, the, the different traditions are so intertwined. Um, but Duke Ellington had such a long career. He, did, he was a composer. He was a pianist. He was a band leader. Um, and he, I think, was one of the figures who sort of helped usher jazz from uh, jazz to a position of being understood as an important art form across the culture as opposed to a, a smaller New Yorkier thing. He was sort of an ambassador for jazz in a way, uh, but also just so beautiful. The music is just so beautiful. He's just my favorite jazz musician. That's really my argument. <laughs> I'm not sure you really, whether you can make it, you probably can make the case that he's the most important or the most significant, but he's just my favorite. So Duke Ellington. Uh, and then finally, this is maybe a contested choice, but Laura Ingalls Wilder. Yeah. So a little weird to put two writers up there. I was going trying to go for a fine artist. You, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do this, but memoir, I'm going to stipulate without really being sure if this is true, feels like a very American art form because it's like kind of self-obsessed, which we are. Um, and then also, I mean, her stuff is fiction, but, but memoir-ish fiction. But also, it's just work that is very powerfully about a very particular moment of uh, American expansion. And those books are great, and they're great to reread. And there's a whole complicated political history around them that that it's important to understand. But I feel like those books are fundamentally American in some deep and profound way. So Laura Ingalls Wilder is my number four. There's Julia Turner's Mount Rushmore. Give it up for our heroes. All right, Stephen Metcalf, what do you got for us? I hope I'm going to get these in the right order. Uh, I may be having an apnea-related event right now, but... Um, Would you like me to maybe put the first one up? <laughs> no. Okay. I'd like you to manually breathe right my, the bridge of my nose, though, Dan. That's not in my contract, Stephen. <laughs> uh, hey, Alexa. All right. Uh, so the first one is... Um, you know, I feel like the American psychosis is... is rooted in the continental expanse and we're sort of the opposite of agoraphobes we have this uh, almost pathological attraction to openness and um, uh, uh, eternally receding horizons and um, but we have another aspect of our character as well which is that we were uh, puritanical and 
we believed that each individual lived within the enclosed chamber of their own Protestant conscience, which you fly specked and examine for hours on end. And so I see this as the... I mean, none of this is all bullshit, by the way. <laughs> I have no idea who number one is. <laughs> no, I do. But uh, I see this as the, as the deep dialectic uh, of America, this kind of pathological openness and this, 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 the room of one's own uh, burdensome conscience. And to my mind, the writer who somehow uh, takes these two... Well, actually, it really doesn't take the two. Takes the second and turns it into a, a tonic for the first is this poet. Yeah. Oh. Was that right? Oh. I just wanted to achieve the biggest anticlimax possible. <laughs> 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 and I think I fucking nailed it, honestly. Yeah. So I'm going to give myself a little ringy dingy. Yeah, no, it's Emily Dickinson. Okay, I'm not really sure who number two is, but I'm, I'm going to continue spinning out the theme of enclosure and spilling out of enclosure and no artist in the American idiom is better than cascading maniacally but wonderfully in beautiful uh, involutions that return upon themselves in theme and It's variation. John Coltrane. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I wasn't sure who it was. Uh, I think Coltrane is probably my favorite American musician. I, I just, uh, to me, he's the man who took jazz to its beautiful summit. I, I really, I mean, I just could listen to Coltrane from any period in his career and listen to that man play saxophone, you know, limitlessly. However, you would, <laughs> you would not have John Coltrane if you didn't have... The blues is, about, is, is, is the structure upon which uh, all American music is built, original American music has been built. Well, you got to say the name out loud. This is a podcast. Oh, it's W.C. Handy, father of the blues. And then finally, I think we're just going to go with a face here on the count of three. <laughs> All right, make the case for Jack Nicholson. Wait, he's not dead. <laughs> Disqualified. Give it, give it time. <laughs> he's, you know. All right, I'm not going to make, I'm not going to speak ill of the living. Um, <laughs> of the still living. All right, here's my argument for the still alive Jack Nicholson. Um, <laughs> film acting, I think, is the most underappreciated art form, uh, and Hollywood film acting has really, you know, been a Central American art form now for close to 100 years. Nicholson, I just, I was pondering, apropos of absolutely nothing, Nicholson's run from roughly Easy Rider up to The Shining. And it just suddenly occurred to me, that is a body... Like, we don't know how to think exactly about performance-based work, right? So we now understand, okay, the film auteur, we understand that Billy Wilder is a certain kind of artist. He wrote things down, he made something. It has a relationship to authorship that we... Analogous relationship that we understand. Therefore, we can put him into some kind of pantheon. Actors is such a... It's such a... It's no longer evanescent. People in 10,000 years will be able to watch those Jack Nicholson movies we don't exactly know how to weave them together and think of them as a body of work. And yet, if you think about what that guy did in King of Marvin Gardens, uh, Help Me Out, Chinatown, Five Easy Pieces, uh, I mean, film after film after film, and the guy's just an artist of preeminent rank. All right. Period. When he's dead, (laughs) we'll consider it. (laughs) All right, so I've taken all of these suggestions under advisement other than Jack Nicholson. (laughs) And uh, I'm starting to craft my definitive slate list. Uh, Walt Whitman. The beard looked so good. Uh, <laughs> the argument was really good, too. Mostly it was the beard, though. But he was the one who, who I think most embraced the notion of speaking for America in many ways uh, in his work. Uh, Billie Holiday. I think that um, the, her voice, the songs that she sang, but also uh, purely through Strange Fruit, I think, particularly has earned her place up on that wall. Andy Warhol, I really, I liked it when you said it last week. I feel like he represents a very particular American kind of uh, innovation and bullshit, which I think are both hallmarks of great American art. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to throw out my wild card, the name that none of you said, but you're all wrong, um, because no one did anything about theater. Uh, And I think Mm. if you're going to talk about great American art forms, the American musical is one of the great art forms ever created. And so the 
person I would put up on that wall because Sondheim is not dead yet is Joe Papp. I would put Joe Papp on that wall as the guy who's pretty much single-handedly responsible for the shape of American theater in the last 50 years. Uh, so that's, that's the official slate, Cultural Mount Rushmore. <laughs> great job. You guys were really great. I'm so sorry I only took one of your picks. Uh, all right. Then thank you all for your picks. Give it up for our Mount Rushmores. Thanks, Dan. This is Julia back in the studio. It's spring, which means it's time to celebrate nature, be active, and eat healthy, delicious food. Green Chef helps people do just that. They're a new food delivery service that makes cooking at home easy with their consciously sourced organic meals and ingredients. Choose meal plans like vegetarian, omnivore, paleo, carnivore, or gluten-free and get fresh ingredients sent right to your door. Green Chef saves you time and gives you peace of mind. They do the research for you, selecting organic, sustainable ingredients that are good for you and the environment. They take care of the planning, measuring, and prep work so that even the busiest of people can whip up an amazing meal in an average of just 30 minutes. Green Chef is offering our listeners four free meals with your first order at greenchef.com slash culture. It's a pretty good deal, four free meals. That's G-R-E-E-N-C-H-E-F dot com slash culture. All right, back to our show. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse day Yes. Nah. Well, what do you have? Okay, well, especially since uh, Dan didn't take a single one of my Rushmore suggestions, I'm going to return to one of them in my endorsement. Um, and this is something I actually wrote about this week, and it will be up on Slate in the next couple of days. But so um, Samuel Beckett and Buster Keaton made a movie together in 1965. Does anybody out there know about this film or has seen it? Yeah, a couple hands out there. It was called just film. It was an avant-garde short. It was 20 minutes long. And uh, it was directed by a theatrical director named Alan Schneider, who had worked with Beckett a lot in the past. And it was regarded at the time of its release. It was barely seen, seen at a few festivals, you know, just a very obscure, arty, 20-minute short. And it was generally regarded as a, an artistic failure, that it was this strange anomaly in both the careers of Keaton and Beckett, that their sensibilities never really collided, and that while it was a curiosity, you know, that was sort of interesting for scholars to see, that there really wasn't much there in terms of the, the great works that they had achieved. Um, so there's this new um, documentary about the making of film that's called Not Film uh, by, by a film preservationist named Ross Lippman. And, uh, and I really, really recommend it for anyone who's interested in either of those two artists or the history of film or the filmed essay as a genre because that's sort of what this documentary is. It tells the story of the making of film, but it also interweaves all these really beautifully chosen clips from film history and music and really uses the medium to to kind of investigate some of the paradoxes of artistic success, artistic failure. Why was this collaboration not a success? What would it mean for it to be a success? And uh, I just, I really thought it was beautiful, one of the best things I've seen all year. So this is playing at the Anthology Film Archive in New York right now, and uh, and we'll be opening across the U.S. in different cities and uh, and across the, the globe, I think, in Europe and maybe maybe Asia as well. Anyway, we'll put a link on the show page to where you can find screenings of not film. But uh, that was really one of the best things I experienced in culture, not just this week, but this year so far. Oh, that's excellent. Um, Julia Turner. So every so often I bring an endorsement to the Culture Gab Fest, um, and Dana and Steve just laugh at me. It might be every week, but like... <laughs> You guys get to decide whether this is better or worse than the time that I endorsed Chinatown. <laughs> I hadn't seen it. Then I saw it, and it was so good. <laughs> Starring Jack Nicholson. Go on. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, all right. This, uh, the movie I'm about to endorse features Orson Welles. Uh, this weekend, I finally saw The Third Man. I was fucking flayed alive by you when I endorsed The Third Man. You basically said, why not endorse The Blue Sky? <laughs> <laughs> you know, or an orb capable of generating life in the midst of a completely lifeless void, or, you know... I mean, it was... Anyway. Well, here I am. <laughs> You're treading where the greats have trod. <laughs> um... Well, but I have this 
relationship to classics sometimes, especially movies where you haven't seen clips of them or anything, where you, you, you have like the idea in your head around it. You're like, Chinatown, right, Water Rights, Nicholson, California, whatever. Um, and The Third Man, I was like, post-war, Graham Greene. Having not seen it, you have so, this, yeah, 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 before yeah, you okay. see it, you have this like mental file, and then you sort of don't, you know, you, you don't really have a there there. And I didn't, I, I sort of thought like grim post-war, I don't know what. The, this movie is amazing. If you have not seen, who has seen The Third Man? <laughs> I like it. More than have the echo, definitely. Um, but not everybody. So for those of you who have not yet seen it, race to put it on your list. Race to watch it. Here are the things that surprise me about it that are amazing. First of all, um, it's shot in post-war Vienna. I have not spent that much time in visual video representations of what those cities were like uh, at that time. And it's crazy. They have these amazing chases and cat and mouse games through these like half-disassembled streets that are partially like twee Viennese cutesiness and then like rubble everywhere and it's a very stark black and white cinematography it's like gorgeous and eerie and used beautifully second the cinematography feels really fresh and modern and it's this jarring experience of watching you know kind of period black and white stuff but without the stuffiness and allure and romance it's they're sort of like tilted unusual compositions and framings and sketchy like it's just it's it's not the kind of uh, directorial approach you expect from a movie of that period Third of all, it is funny as hell and really, really dark and makes Casablanca, which you think of as a dark, nihilistic movie about war, seem like a Disney romantic cupcake. Like that final... The, 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 if you compare the endings of Casablanca, it's hard to think of like, you know, Casablanca's ending probably, you'd put it on the list of top 25 film endings of all time, maybe 10. Uh, the ending of this movie is perfect. I won't explain anything about it, but it is maybe the <laughs> you best. You don't need to explain anything about it because everybody's seen it. <laughs> no, that is not true. It was like two-fifths. It was 40% that had seen it. a pie. <laughs> Come on. In any event, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's perfect. Uh, and um, it, it makes the ending of Casablanca look like cotton candy. Yeah. Uh, it is a great ending. One of the great ending shots of all time. And the Zither score. Can't forget the, the incredible score. Can't forget the Zither. Screenplay by? Graham Greene, right? Yeah. It's, it's my favorite movie of all time. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to, you know, sort of inspired by the brom- bromosocial romance of um, the Linklater movie, I'm going to endorse my favorite, favorite such movie of all time, the movie Diner. Uh, written and directed by Barry Levinson. Anyone seen Diner? Has it just this sort of disappeared? A little bit of the backstory of the movie. Settle in. Is um, uh, Levinson? I think made the movie on a fairly low budget. It has an incredible ensemble cast, all of whom went on to become quite well known. Every single one of them went on to have a you know a very good Hollywood career. Well, Gutenberg. No, but Gutenberg was, if you can believe, like Cocoon, right? Like he was a star. He, like, he was a legit right? star. Yeah, he had a for, career. He had a career. Right. I mean, the two pikers would be Tim Daly and Steve Gutenberg, but, you know, but then you had Kevin Bacon and Mickey Rourke and on and on. I can't remember. Daniel Stern. Anyway, it's a great ensemble, homosocial bonding, period comedies. It takes place in 1959 in Baltimore. And um, Levinson struggled to get it released, I believe, and then he just screened it for a bunch of L.A. film critics. And they were rapturous, and he got the movie out in front of audiences. Anyway, I'm not only going to endorse the movie Diner, I'm going to endorse one specific scene from the movie, which is Mickey Rourke and... I'm pretty sure it's Mickey Rourke and and Bacon, it is. uh, Kevin Bacon are out driving, and it's uh, kind of dawn early in the morning, and it's beautiful Maryland countryside, horse country, and they come across, you know, impeccably, you know, constructed horse fencing, and a very beautiful woman on a very beautiful, very young, very beautiful woman on a quite beautiful horse, and they pull up to her, and uh, and Mickey Work says with this just oleaginous smirk on his face, he says, "We were just admiring your horse," and she says something along the lines of, "Yeah, I bet you were," and um, and then uh, they have a little bit of banter. And she, I think he asks her for her name, and she says, Jane Chisholm, like the Chisholm Trail. And then she just gallops off. And they're both sort of sitting there, and you can tell that they both feel like they're about nine fucking years old inside. This brush-off is just so beautifully 
executed. And Mickey Rourke says, what fucking Chisholm Trail? <laughs> and there's a long pause, and Kevin Bacon says, you ever get the feeling there's something going on out there that we know nothing about? <laughs> and this is exactly how I felt when I heard that Wendy Deng and Vladimir Putin <laughs> were, having a rela- were having an affair, a relationship. And I thought, I am those fucking nine-year-old boys. <laughs> And there's a lot going on out there that I know fucking nothing about. Um, anyway, it's such a wonderful movie. And then, the, uh, and then the punchline of the whole scene is they get back in the car and they says, Boog, should we keep on driving? And Bacon says, no, 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 let's call it a night. Even though you thought it was like four in the afternoon, they've been driving all night. Anyway, wonderful movie. Um, here is where I admit that I forgot to print out the credits to the show. Ooh. Oh, I thank you first. Dana, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Julia, thanks. Thanks, Steve. Let me see if I can do it. I have no... I bet these people can Hey, help. Alexa. Um, <laughs> you'll find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page, facebook.com slash culturefest, <laughs> and you can email us at... <laughs> culturefest at slate.com. So, culturefest but also at our slate. show page is slate.com slash culturefest. Can you do this? You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can also join us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest to chat about some of the things we talked about today and submit your own culture Mount Rushmore's. Uh, You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht uh, with extra help today from Darian and Chelsea. Uh, Our producer is Ann Happerman. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. The chief content officer of Panoply and the Panoply network of which we are a part is Andy Bowers. Thank Special thanks to Willa Remus, Dan Coyce, and Alexa for joining us. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. It's been a pleasure. We'll talk to you all next week. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Send the poets, vulnerable people, not invulnerable drones. That was poet Saul Williams with his radical suggestion for dealing with ISIS. I'm Jason Gotts, host of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Each week we surprise smart people with topics they're not prepared to discuss. Salman Rushdie on astrophysics, Jesse Ventura on alien life forms. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Think again, it's deep fun.